Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Thursday morning, March 9, 843-661-0937 in real time. Trying to get my material here together. This is going to be a very important and consequential radio endeavor uh, this morning. Okay. What if? Good morning, Rev. Good morning. What if everything we believed was proven to be a lie? And I'm talking about patriotism and um, the most generous nation in the world, the exceptional leadership, a source of good, all these other um, propaganda. I mean, verbiages <laughs> that that um. That America's espoused over the uh, over the past twenty five or thirty, uh, really since the the Second World War. I am so interested in this. I mean, it's almost consumed me. I don't have a Murdoch okay. trial anymore. Now, speaking of the Murdoch trial, Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila Law Firm will be with us at uh, eight oh five, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. Patrick is a um, Patrick is not of the same political mindset as yours truly. Um, imagine. I've often wondered, how can a trial lawyer be conservative? It's hard. I mean, it really is because the majority of conservative policy would conflict his um, gainful employment. Um, it's kind of, it's, kind of a, it's an economy is what it is. But, but anyway, Patrick will be with us. And it's interesting, Patrick said he was, um, he was sitting down with a client maybe the week before last. Might have been last week. I think it might have been last week. But he sent me a text and said, hey, I'm sitting down with a client discussing a case. And he said, hey. I hear you on that radio show. And it, it kind of dawned on me. He said, well, I, okay, I know you have one listener because it's, um, it's a potential client of mine. But I've always, Rev, been able to um, build true friendships. I'm not talking about fake, phony, transactional friendships, but true friendships with people I have a very different worldview of. Um, we normally don't it would, talk it would about be, it. It would be sad if you couldn't. Well, I mean, it, but but it got in the way of a couple of my, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll go on the record right now. You ready? Mm-hmm. One of my really good friends doesn't talk to me much anymore because of Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really and truly doesn't. I, I had some pr- surprising encounters with. Uh, well, you told me about a particular, yeah, can I say a, family member? Yeah, okay. a, rel- a relative. Go, go on the record if you don't mind. Uh, I do this all the time. Yeah. You're more reserved about, it, about putting your business on the street. No, I don't mind. Okay. Um, and a, a little bit of a distant uh, family member, but and really it came out of, I, I shared a pro, I guess a pro-Trump comment or post you had made on social media. And I had shared that on my Facebook well, or something. Why it's got to be about me, Rev? Why but, is it all of me? I'm just saying okay. that that was kind of the. the you subtly blamed me. I, in, in, not, in a very subtle way. It's not a blame. No, you're coy. And I'm kind of <laughs> proud of you in this way. You're cunning. <laughs> I, because you said, I mean, you've already admitted that you had somewhat of a um a situation that involved a family member. Right. But before you even explained yourself, you, you prefaced it with, I shared a, uh, something you said. That's or, how or we got there. Well, 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 and, and, but and it's what, so subtle and, and cutting. See, you took it all wrong because... I, you you talked about me not being one to share my you know political views a little more reserved putting all that stuff out there publicly where you're not at all so i guess ironically as part of this conversation i shared a post that you had made and it involved president trump and i think uh, it was before it was actually before the 2020 election and uh, things were pretty hot and heavy out there in the political world as they were uh, they were battling for votes at that point but yeah i i had shared this post and I got a private message back from uh, this family member that just, I mean, skewered me up one side and down the other. How could you? You know, I thought you, I knew you, and I don't. I mean, just because, you know, of who I may like or promote or, you know, admit that I vote for, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. 
I couldn't believe it. And, and, and to be honest, I haven't had any interaction with that family member since. Well, I mean, that's kind of where I am with this. Um, I mean, this friend was not a daily part of my life, but I thought he and I were in good standing. We would touch base. Big Clemson guy. I'm a Gamecock. He's a liberal guy. I'm a conservative guy. But we had built this a pretty good friendship. I don't want to say an intense friendship, but um, there, there have been a couple of times in my life that I needed him. He was there. A couple of times in his life, he's needed me. He was there. Um. He knew that, that our political persuasions were uniquely different one from another, but we just were able to kind of work through whatever came our way. We had some political dealings in Columbia when I was lieutenant governor. Um, I can remember one situation in particular that he got frustrated with me by a ruling I made in the chamber. I mean, he's a, a very involved in politics kind of guy. but And we'd spoke twice a week. We'd speak once about politics, and it would be gentlemanly. I mean, it'd be disagreeable, but it'd be respectful. He would say things like, I know damn well that you're not supporting Trump. I mean, I know you better than that. And I'd say, um, no, not, not, not a problem at all. And I'd explain myself. And then something would happen politically, and I'd call him, and I'd say, man, I know you can't. I mean, somebody said you're on that team. I mean, wow. I mean, I knew you were left, but I didn't know you were that far left. And he'd explain himself, and we'd move on. That would be on a Tuesday by Thursday. You know what he'd do? He'd be on his way home from Columbia. He'd call me and we'd talk. Never text. We always called. He'd call me and we'd talk Gamecocks Tigers for an hour. And, I mean, it was not confrontational, not combative. But since Trump, it's been different. I don't hear from him very much. Um, I don't reach out to him very much. I mean, I kind of put my my stake in the ground, so to speak. And I guess he put his stake in the ground, so to speak. And, um, and I, that's unfortunate. I wish uh, it weren't the case, but indeed um, it is. But I want to go back to the comment. Well, first of all, let's go back to um, yesterday's show because we talked a good bit. I mean, you and I actually did a podcast yesterday mm-hmm. that'll be um, downloaded today. Um, right. we, I think we've done fair. I mean, you, you say we've done okay. I don't think we've done yeah. as well as we need to. And um, We're going to get better, but, but we're he, adequate to start. That, but, was, but, that was my goal. But, but there, there's content that's got to get better. Um, I, think they're, they're, I think your content is great, and uh, the production quality will get better. Well, I mean, no, no, the production quality is great. The content will get better. <laughs> um, you want to kiss one another's uh, butt anymore? I mean, that, first I thing, guess that sounds first a little weird. Didn't well, it, I mean, it did yeah. very weird, yeah. and, and and real fake and phony. Uh, um, uh, but I mean, we, we, we're both going to get better, but but we've still got to we we got to get some um ah some subscribers, some views. Yeah, uh, I, I would imagine I'm in the gym yesterday, and a guy comes up to me and said, "Hey, how can I?" Find your podcast. I don't know. Did you have any clue? No, I don't know. See, and I got to be better at that. Yeah. I mean, a guy comes up to me and says, how can I find your podcast? I should make you a little card you, you that do. you can hand out. Here's, well, here's or maybe where you, you can, can send me a voicemail and I can say, hey, I don't know, but let me um, <laughs> let me just show you the uh, what Dave go. Baker says. There you go. Um, you do. Uh, it's kind of interesting here. Uh, Rev has been after me about changing my profile on Twitter, mm. and we're going to do it over the weekend. I mean, I, I've, just got, I've just got a name, and um, I mean, it'll be something like former and scandal, scandal-ridden and disgraced lieutenant governor of South Carolina, host of Wake Up Carolina, um, and now host of um, No Stops Last with Ken Ard. But I've tried to tweet more, not anywhere near as much Facebook. I got I to gotta level with you. Facebook is too slow-moving for me. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, what I'm having for dinner. Wow, look at this great plate of food I'm having in Pauly's Island. Um, you know, I get the... Um, the wishing happy birthdays and anniversaries and communicating with friends. I mean, it is perfect for that, but I'm in the business of political opinion. 
And and Twitter is far more uh, responsive, interactive, um, divulging a political opinion. But you, you, there's a metric called views. And, you know, having a view doesn't mean somebody liked it, doesn't mean they read it, but there was access. So yesterday, Liz Cheney tweets, um, if House GOP wants new January 6th hearing, bring it on. And then she goes into blood every witness and all evidence from last year. Anyway, Liz Cheney, and then it's um, retweeted by George Conway, who is um, I saw what you formerly, what, what do you mean? Okay, uh, you're one of the uh, actually 13.2 thousand people this morning. Really? I've never had that much. Um, it's not a response. Now, please it's understand, a it's a view. And that's a new metric, I think, that Musk had put on there to publicly display how Correct. many people view. So, so anyway, um, Liz Cheney tweets um, 17 hours ago right now, if at House GOP wants new January 6th hearings, bring it on. Let's replay every witness and all evidence from last year. Um, George Conway, who is divorcing Kellyanne Conway, says 15 hours later, excuse me, two hours later, 15 hours ago, I'll have what she's having. So I tweeted, um, a soon-to-be single man and a recently divorced former member of Congress walk into a bar. And I got, I mean, it was inundated with negative responses. I mean, obviously. That was a good one. Well, I mean, that I reeks like of it. sarcasm. I of course it. it does. That's smart alecky. Um, but that's me. I mean, I'm, I'm smart alecky and, and sarcastic. When you're not very bright, you make up for it in other ways, right? Deflection <laughs> is a is a um, is a noble way to um, kind of steer people away away from some of your aptitudinal weaknesses. Are man, he's sarcastic and creative. He ain't real smart, but he is sarcastic and um and and somewhat combative. So um, a soon to be single man and a recently divorced, excuse me, recently defeated former member of Congress walk into a bar. I didn't want to be personal and I didn't want to be insulting, but I wanted to be a little bit funny. And, um, and I thought it was very appropriate to send. Well, I mean, man, I got just rolled with, I guess, Liz Cheney and, um, and some other, see, there's two people that just, um, liked it as I speak about it on the, oh, yeah. on the radio. So, um, so were so, there, so, there comments on your oh, comment? No, there's comment after comment oh. after comment. I think I saw it right after you posted it. So there wasn't, there was just like 23 views or something when I saw it. So I, I haven't seen the follow-up. So two Check hours ago, someone puts, and I knew this was coming. For someone convicted of seven at state ethic violations, I wouldn't be throwing stones oh, if I were you. There you go. That's But it's not seven. It's 17. I mean, it's, <laughs> get it right. Get it at right. least. Give me full credit. <laughs> I don't want no partial credit. It was not seven state ethics violations. It was 17 state ethics violations. I think nine were cups of coffee at Starbucks. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's um, that's part of the thing people worried about me most when I had um, my ethics report done was – a conservative guy drinks a lot of that Starbucks coffee. I don't know if he's one of us or not. I would expect Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme from a conservative soul, not Starbucks. But, uh, but yeah, it had 13,000 or about 13,200 um, uh, views. Now, once again, that doesn't mean it's interactive, but there were a ton of, um, of people that came to the aid and assistance of, I guess, George Conway and, and Liz Cheney. And when you agree to dabble in that, in that forum – you're going to get it both ways. I mean, you're going to get some people that agree with you and think your comments are appropriate. You're going to get others that bring up political um, events of 13 years ago, you know, to try and diminish your voice in um in the world of social media. But I thought about no stoplights, and I thought about the podcast. And we are indeed, Rev. I mean, stick with me here for a second. We are in the business of vertically, vertically integrated media, mm-hmm. whether we want to or not. 
I mean, there's so many different aspects to what we do here. Twitter feeds the Facebook, excuse me, um, Twitter feeds, because we're not very active on Facebook. I think we're going to get there, um, but we're, you know, I don't say we're building a brand. I mean, we're not having a business meeting here um, this morning, but, but we want you who enjoy what we do in the mornings to become subscribers of our podcast. We should have somewhat of an advantage in the early goings. I mean, we have a listenership. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, we got the ratings. Um, we know there is a certain percentage of you out there that listen to what we do every morning, but we've kind of got a captive audience. I mean, if you've got to be somewhere at 7.30 in the morning and you kind of like politics, I, we're, I don't want to say we're the only show in town because I guess you could listen to podcasts at any point in time, and some do. But, um, but we hope, and, and Rev, jump in here, we, we hope that our low-hanging fruit or those of you who have become a part of our world Monday through Friday from 6.05 until 10 in the morning, um, if we can't connect with you via the podcast, we're probably not going to be um, successful in the in the end. I now, once again, true. we think we will eventually attract an audience that aren't familiar with what we do. I'd put it this way. We're counting on you. I mean, we're all kind of a family here. We talk about that. And we're serious about that. Uh, but we're counting on your help now as we launch this new venture because you're, you're kind of the base for which or, this thing will grow, I or, think. Are I we hope. counting on their help or begging for their help? That too. Okay. Yeah. We're counting we're on your help. We're also begging for your help as we, I mean, I think they were satisfied with what happened yesterday, some of the response, some of the subscribers and views. I don't know that I am. I mean, I, you know, I want to, oh, yeah. I want to rival Rogan in a week, but oh, I mean, I know that's unrealistic. But, but, you know, before we take our first break of the morning, because I'm going to come back and, um, and really delve into this, you know, what if we, what if everything you've been told and want to believe is a lie? Tucker last night used the word liar over and over and over and over again. And I mean, I've had a couple of articles I've read. I'm still reading and trying to better understand. Remember last week when we talked about, um, the, the plot of neoconservatism, I mean, I, I made up the, the analogy, and I didn't make it up. I, I, I discerned from reading other experts that a lot of the um, affinity America has with neoconservatism is this, um, uh, this belief that America led to a noble and moral conclusion of the Second World War. I, I, I guess I get it. I mean, I don't remember the Second World War. I was born in 1963. Um, it's pretty interesting, Rev. The end of the Second World War was not, what, 16, 17, 18 years ago um, before I died, before I was born. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, okay, my father and mother had a child in 1963, 18 years or so. Well, the, the, when did the war is? The second, 45? 40, yeah. Uh, somewhere thereabout. I mean, it, I'm, I'm round off here, yep. but I'm, I'm pretty close to that. Yep. So, um, so we're 22 years past 9-11. So I'm thinking about how real that is in my world. 9-11 is still very real and vivid in my world. I can see those buildings fall. Now, I understand we didn't have cable television. We didn't have 24-hour news cycles. Um, but, but when you think about the expanse of time, my mom and dad had a kid 18 or so years after the end of the Second World War. I can remember as vividly as it were yesterday, 9-11 of those buildings falling, the planes crashing, True. and the great desperation in America. Um, so I would imagine my father and mother, if they were alive, would have this feeling of patriotism and, and, and you know, uh, that, that America is indeed 
uh, an exceptional nation and led to a moral and just cause uh, or end of the, the Second World War. But does neoconservatism get a pass forever? And and some of the uh, some of the points made. I'm reading an article in the American Conservative, which I've told you guys. I mean, if you want a, a less Trumpy look or a um, a less uh, America First look, go to the National Review. I mean, they're still by and large neoconservatives. Um, I mean, they're they're intellectuals and they're they're great writers and they're very talented people. But if you want a different take on the um uh, the ideology, the mythology of conservatism, then go to the American Conservative. Um, it would be far more, I don't say Trumpy, because I don't know that Trump would be misunderstood as an American intellect or a political intellect. I mean, I don't think George Will, William Buckley, and Donald Trump um, would be in the same room. You'd probably have Trump and a couple of others in one room, Buckley, Will, some of the um, intellectual conservatives in another. But there's this great divergence in America right now. And, and, and you know, it's kind of a, it's a fork in the road. And, and one fork in the road kind of continues down the path of, giving neoconservatism the benefit of the doubt. The other leads to, uh, share I'll say, death of a myth. The, the mythology that, you know, Americans uh, must always ascribe to the notions of neoconservatism because the world benefited in such a profound way by America's involvement and success in the Second um, World War. But, but I want us to think about this because I think this is the content of today's show that could be a cool show if we get some interaction. What if everything you've been told and want to believe is a lie? What if America is not the nation we perceive it to be? Um, I mean, I've got most generous, exceptional nation, nation that sets aside its interests for the benefit of the world, important source of good, shouldering the heavy responsibility to protect the international system and weak nations from bad actors. I mean, that's, that's one website. I mean, what if we aren't that? I'm, I'm beginning to question. I mean, I'm not a Putin sympathizer. I'm not a closet communist. But, but I'm not going to be blindly loyal to a nation that, that is very imperfect. 843-661-0937. Here's the question that comes to my mind then. If we're not that, what are we? But there you go. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments, are we beginning to enter a period in which populations of other countries, many other countries around the world, um, are beginning to decide that subjecting themselves to American dominance is not in their best interest? In other words, um, I'm not sure those folks who have dominated foreign policy and domestic policy around, I mean, we've shaped a lot of nations' domestic policy. I mean, our foreign policy has led to the uh, the changes in domestic policy of nations around the world. And is the world beginning to clearly understand that we're not the nation we once were? I mean, I don't think the Bill of Rights is diminished. I don't think the Constitution, the, the Declaration of Independence, I mean, I, I think all of those, the Articles of Confederate, I think those are as pristine as they've ever been. Um, we're just not using those as blueprints to govern any longer. And I think the points Tucker made last night were very valid when he said, um, you know, that they're a bunch of liars. Now, now Tucker's a provocateur. Tucker's after what? The same thing we are. Ratings and revenue, to some degree, is an entertainer. But, but I think Tucker really um, laid out a very clear message about America trustworthiness. And if Americans don't trust their leadership, why in God's name should the Germans? 
Why should the Poles? Why should the Russians or the Chinese? And I'm talking about geopolitical adversaries as well as alliances and allies. I mean, if we, the American people, are beginning to lose faith and trust in our political political leadership, wouldn't it be expected that the world would obviously do the same? And when we find out that American government lied to us, and I go back to weapons of mass destruction, I mean, that led to a, a serious military, military incursion. And, I mean, I've got many friends, Rev, that more neocon than I am that would say, well, he had them. I mean, we know he had them because he killed the Kurds. He probably sent those to Assad in Syria. That's not the point. What were we told in a U.N. speech? We were sure he had weapons of mass destruction. We never found the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, I'm not, I'm not accusing the American government in that particular instance of propaganda, but we were wrong. We were wrong about COVID. I mean, we've been wrong about nearly every big decision the government's had to make recently. And are we wrong because we don't know any better? Or are we wrong because there's an intent? I mean, there's malicious behavior behind or motivated by uh, malice or or nefarious behavior. I I don't know that. But the American people are really beginning to question whether the government tells them the truth or not. There's a litany of items that we could go over and break down um, on the big issues. When has our American government got it right? Are they trying to get it right? Or are they um, uh, a propaganda machine, much as other nations that we have adversarial relationships with. I mean, I think that's a very serious point, guys. And and I thought about it writing over this morning. The, I mean, the McConnells of the world are obviously motivated by money and power. I mean, their loyalty is to one another. Their loyalty is to the establishment. You and I didn't help Mitch McConnell and his family become uber-wealthy being a member of Congress. Money, power, money, power, money, power. So is McConnell honestly trying to better understand what happened with QAnon Shaman? Or is McConnell following the, you know, the chief of the uh, Capital City Police because it preserves his power, it preserves his influence? But I think you've seen Mitt Romney. I mean, forget the partisanship for a second. I'm talking about bipartisanship here. I mean, Mitt Romney has said that what Tucker did, what was revolting and disgusting. Lindsey Graham said, I have no, I don't want to make any attempt to whitewash the events of January 6th. I don't think anybody wants to whitewash January 6th. I think we want a thorough investigation, and I don't think we've ever, we don't ever believe we got one. Well, is America first becoming today's media? Historically, we've trusted the media to speak truth to power. I mean, I don't, I don't consider myself a journalist. I would imagine the majority of America first voters don't consider themselves journalists. But, but has, has America first at its core? Because didn't we say yesterday, that the core of America first is highly skeptical of government. I mean, if you ask voting segments in our nation, ask a, um, a liberal Democrat, how suspicious are you of government telling you the truth? It'd be one percentage. Ask a conservative uh, Republican, it'd be another percentage. But if you ask the subset who identifies America firsters, it would be off the charts. I mean, it would be completely and totally off the chart, the, 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 the level of distrust they have toward the federal government. The most distrusting element in Washington should be the media. The media shouldn't trust anything that comes out of a politician's mouth, whether Republican or Democrat. But instead of speaking truth to power, they're they're propagandizing and advancing a certain agenda. And that agenda is Washington can be trusted. Washington will more times than not do the right thing. How many of you genuinely believe that? I don't. 
I mean, I've said it, and I'll say it again. If I've had a calling recently, I've been led to try and convince you to be as skeptical of your government as I am. And I'm talking about your federal government in particular. That's where the power lies. That's the ability to print money and authorize certain um, legislation and policy trickles down. Um, so, yeah, but I've never felt called or led to do anything on the radio. But that's why those characters in Washington and the establishment think you're the problem. Well, sure. I mean, they want me abolished. They want me censored. I mean, they, I, I hate to say this, but I'll say it. I think there was a uh, kind of a golf clap when Rush Limbaugh died. I mean, I, I'll assure you that, that yeah. there, there were there were cigar rooms in Washington and cocktail parties in in Bethesda or Alexandria where they kind of cheered and toasted to lim, you know to Limbaugh finally uh, being gone because he was a thorn in their side and I think somebody's got to take up that mantle and I don't think anybody can take Limbaugh's place but there has to be a team of forces who align against Washington I'm not saying do what happened on January 6. But, but what I am saying is don't take things at face value. They have a loyalty, not to the Constitution, but to themselves. And I'm talking about the Mitt Romney, the Chuck Schumers, the, the Mitch McConnells, the Nancy Pelosi's. Their loyalty is not to the Constitution. It is not to the Declaration of Independence. It is not to you and I. It is to inside the Beltway. That's where they have so advantaged themselves at the trough of the connection between the private and public sector. Let's go to the phone. Sam at Cross Hill. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, uh, uh, Ken and Dave, I don't, don't, um, don't get frustrated right now about the, um, the podcast because it takes a while to build a subscriber's uh, space. I know that based on good friends' um, efforts to do that. And uh, I think one of the things that scares you know, kind of had me a little concerned was the the word podcast. I, I really, I, I've been YouTubing for a long time. I have, I don't really follow podcasts, but when it became apparent that all, all you were really doing was just creating a YouTube site and you got easy access there. Uh, anybody trying to find it just needs to go into the search and, and, and put in um, no stoplights with Ken Art and it'll pop up. Um, and and then one another thing as I, I I had never made comments <clears throat> in a YouTube video and so that took I, what you have to do there is you have to create a YouTube channel which is fairly fairly easy to do but for someone older you, you struggle through it it took me a while to be able to do that so I was able to put, post a, a comment for the first time and that's one of the things I'm really excited about is now we've got a chance to interact with you uh, in that particular. Uh, format. So just uh, keep the faith. It's, you know, it, 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 to birth a baby, it takes what nine months. You got to wait and go through all the pain and anguish. So I think it's going to be okay. And I, I have shared this site with a lot of my friends here in the Upstate, and so it'll it'll it spreads out like that. So I encourage everybody to share information about the site and send them to the first one. Certainly, you know, look at that first one because that's the introduction. Talking about your topic of this morning, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, you know, when Obama was inaugurated, his first inauguration, he said that he was going to change America. And that's what he and his crowd have set out to do. And I think there were forces in play even before that. Uh, this country is an exceptional country. I have faith in this country. But now that I'm hearing your doubts, it concerns me because this is exactly what they want us to do. They want us to question uh, uh, the exceptionalism of this country of this country. And I think the reason that 
we're having such problems is America first uh, is resisting the transition that they want they want to happen, and um, uh, so uh, you know I I I, 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 I question just like you do, and it upsets me because you know my seventy years here, I've seen the greatness of this country, and we're a flawed country too. We have our problems, but we are able to work through them, and so. Uh, uh, yeah, I never thought I'd reach a point in my life anyway where I'd see the, the uh, what's going on in our country. Uh, and I'll hang up and just listen to you guys. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Look, I love America. I mean, I'm patriotic, guys. I've told you over and over and over again. I mean, I have had a front row seat of the American dream. There's no way that, that I live a life I've lived in any place other than here. I mean, I, I love America with every fiber of my being. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the vi- divine ordinance of, you know, a certain group of men at a certain place in time creating a certain kind of government that allowed um, us to pursue our life, liberty, and happiness. I mean, I am all on board with that. But we don't get a lifetime exemption, guys. The Constitution doesn't guarantee us success in perpetuity, happiness in perpetuity, liberty and freedoms in perpetuity. Let me ask you this. If we still believe or identify as a great nation, how can we abandon in Afghanistan the way we did? How can we be so wrong on COVID? How can we say that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction when he didn't? How can we, um, I mean, just think about some of the mistakes we, and I'm not talking about, you know, a double yellow line too far down the road before you get to the curve. I mean, those are incidentals. I mean, those are major things if you have an accident and we have an investigation and we find DOT did something wrong or DMV did something. I'm talking about on the big issues. I believe the Constitution is as great a document today as it ever was. I believe the Declaration of Independence is as great a document as it ever was. And if our leadership were abiding by the principles of those guiding documents, I'd have full faith in our future. They're not. They're self-preservationist. It's about money and power. They don't, they, they aren't indebted to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. It's money, power, and loyalty to themselves. And I think introspection and self-evaluation are necessary if we're going to redeem ourselves. How many of you believe we're off course? I, mean, I, I think Me. it's hard to argue we aren't. I mean, look, look at the big issues, guys. I mean, anybody who said, I mean, we're the most free country in the history of mankind. Anybody who said, man, that COVID could have started in that lab. I mean, you were censored. As a normal, average, everyday American, you were not allowed to espouse that view. Who decided that? I mean, you've told me, Rev, one of the biggest concerns you have about our podcast is me saying something that YouTube has no tolerance for. Right. I mean, you've told me every day, hey, man, I'm worried about what you said because YouTube has these um, what, what do you call them? We're, Content moderators. Yeah, we're going to test the. Uh, we're going to test we're, their censors, da- basically. We're damn sure going to test them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure of that because I'm not going to relegate myself to doing what YouTube or Google would have me do. But I mean, think about that, guys. I mean, think about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, some of the some of the documents that we believe in so profoundly and intensely, and then think about the world we live in today. And, and, the, and the American century, is America in decline? Of course it is. Absolutely it is. There's no denying that reality. 
You can love the Constitution. You can believe in American values and principles, but you must believe and accept that our nation is in decline. The debate is, are we in free fall? There are some days I think we are. There are other days I believe, well, um, maybe we're not in free fall, but it's hard to argue. What is Amer- what's better in America today as, as it relates to government? I'm not talking about the humanity, the human spirit. I mean, I think the human spirit wins out every time. But the point I want to make is as we launch a podcast, no stoplights with Kennard, I have taken it upon myself to do as much as I can in convincing you that nothing is eternal. Except, you know, if you're a Christian, you believe in salvation, you believe in eternal life on the other side. But nothing on this world or nothing in this world is promised or guaranteed. You've got to go out and earn it. I mean, we've got to earn an audience on, on digital. We, we don't have any credibility there, Rev. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, a certain percentage of Americans believe, well, I mean, it goes back to that Constitution Declaration of Independence. And as long as that's in place, we're a great nation. No. I mean, that, that means nothing. Men act upon their impulses. What are their impulses guided by? And right now, it's not the Constitution. It's not the Declaration of Independence. It's money and power and loyalty to themselves. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial member FINRA SIPC. This morning's edition of the Armstrong Minutes is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group, dedicated to growing and protecting your wealth. Welcome back Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong is with us as he normally is on a Thursday morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing well, Ken. And hey, I like uh, all the lights and stuff. Makes me yeah. feel a little con- self-conscious, but uh, yeah. I have a face for radio, so yeah. I'm not sure. I hope you're not well, broadcasting you, this. You're, you're in bad <laughs> trouble if you do because the cameras are rolling and the lights are bright in the studio. We're still... um. We're still practicing yeah, yes, uh, podcasting anyway, when we are Congratulations on the podcast. Well, I, w- I watched your first one, and and I, I know it's a little bit like training wheels when you're doing a different medium, but I think you're going to do great. Thank you very much. Appreciate that, Reg. Uh, let's, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I rant about the government. <laughs> one of my big complaints is they collect about $5.03 trillion. That ain't enough. That's right. They're spending about $6.2 trillion or $6.3 mm. trillion. Um, it's not my job to subsidize the mistakes the government makes. <laughs> yeah. If someone has the same mindset as I do, it's right. not my job. That's right. Tax season is upon us. We're getting closer right. and closer to the uh, to the filing period. What are things that people can do to keep more of their money right. and force the government to live within its <laughs> means? Yeah, I mean, we have the right within the law. You know, you know the difference between tax, you know, uh, avoidance and tax evasion is about 20 years to life. Okay. I mean, you know, so you, you, we have the right to avoid taxes within the legal framework we're given. And, and some things we can't do once we pass the December 31st, 22 deadline, but there's a few we can. So for example, if you're eligible to contribute to a traditional IRA, uh, you can do for 2022 and you didn't do that. You, you can do that. You can put away six thousand dollars, sixty five. I mean, you, you seven thousand with a catch up provision. I mean, you have some ability to re- affect your taxes. Now, some people will earn too much and they can't, but many, many can. Hey, I want, I don't want to pay as much in taxes. Talk to your tax advisor. Is that something smart for you to do? And, and it very well may be. If you're in a workplace where you have, for example, a, 
a high deductible uh, health care plan. So you also have what's known as an HSA, a health savings account. Well, health savings accounts are what we call triple tax free. And it may be really worth funding that to the max every year because number one, the money you put in, you get, uh, you may not get a, a tax deduction right now, but number one is the money you put in, you get to, it gets to grow tax deferred. Okay. Number one. Number two, if it's used for medical expenses, you don't pay any taxes. And when you turn 65, you can then pull it out for anything and still, and just, and you can pay taxes on it, but you can still pay it even after 65, use it as an IRA or use it still for medical stuff. So the point is, uh, well, probably one of these sessions, I'll talk more about HSAs. I'm going to talk about it in my newsletter to my clients uh, in the next quarter. But just, um, you know, that's one thing for people to look at. It, let's say you're self-employed. You're like, oh, you know, man, we did so well last year and I never set up a retirement plan. Well, you know, one of the best retirement plans known as a solo or an individual 401k, yeah, you missed the deadline. You, you had to have that set up. But a SEP, a Simplified Employee Pension IRA, SEP IRAs they called, you can set that up by the tax deadline for last year. And you've got it, if you file an extension, you've got till October 16th to fund it. So I have clients who, you know, just because of cash flow reasons and delay of filing taxes, they're, they're putting deposits to reduce their taxes all, you know, in 2022, all the way, you know, they'll do it in October. And so my point is, is there are a few things. Uh, the last one uh, I'll close on is, uh, while it doesn't help you on your federal taxes, we are one of the few states, it's not all the states, that allow you, when you put a contribution to your South Carolina 529 plan, uh, not, you know, as a reminder, you get a, an unlimited tax deduction here. You know, I say unlimited, you know, up to the legal limits, but you can put, if you put in 10,000 or you put in 100,000, it'll reduce your South Carolina income taxes. Well, we can do that in South Carolina up to the tax filing deadline for the previous year. So if all of a sudden you're saying, ooh, I made more in 22 than I will in 23, I could use that deduction better, you can make a contribution. So the point is, chat with your tax advisor, chat with your financial professional, and if you need a second opinion, uh, I'll give you my number in a moment. But it's, uh, but it, it's good to look at those things. What else can I do? And what can I do to prepare for the current season as well? And I would imagine that's the uh, that's the role you play as a Absolutely. partner, not just an advisor, but somewhat of a partner mm -hmm. as people navigate these issues. If someone wants to start a relationship with yep. your firm, um, give me the thumbnail of how that takes place. Sure. So they they give us a call, or they sometimes they'll, they'll check us out. You know, I, I will tell you, Ken, probably one out of every two people who gives a call will say, you know. They may say, hey, my neighbor suggested we talk to you, or my coworker said, but then they'll say, and I, and I hear you on the radio. We you like know, that. I know. I know you do. I, I like it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad I'm on here. But it's, but we'll have that. We start off with a phone call just to say, hey, what's your situation? Just see, is there a potential fit? We, we don't want to waste someone's time if it's not going to be a fit. So we ask a couple of questions, see if it's a fit. Then... It's a, it's a no obligation discovery session. Hey, it's almost like a first date. We get to know you a little bit. You get to know us. And the only decision you make at that first meeting is, is there going to be a second one that, you know, and that, the, and in between the two meetings is where we put our thinking caps on and look at your situation and come up with potential solutions. But that all starts with 843-292-9997.
I'll say it again, 843-292-9997. You said it well. Thank you, Reg. <laughs> Appreciate it, Good Ken. seeing you. Reggie Armstrong of right. Armstrong Wealth. And um, I mean, Reggie's been with us since about the get-go, Rev, since we um decided True. to not launch a podcast, but rather um, start a radio show from scratch. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think we've got some um, disclaimer business to take care of. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at 1807 West Evans Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. 843-661-0937, our number. Welcome to call. Um, want to have a call? We do. Okay, let's go to the phone. I'm sorry. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Hey, I watched that podcast. It was actually pretty good. Uh, once you figure out what to do with your hands, don't let Dave <laughs> tie them up. Because you can't talk without them. I sure can. <laughs> you are right. Good. And like I said before, you know, experience is, is probably the hardest teacher because you go to school, you learn the lesson. And then you take the test. With experience, you take the test, and then you learn the lesson. Correct. So I think you you did a real good job learning on the job. I, I saw a difference from the start all the way to the finish, and I really enjoyed it. So I, I'm going to jump on that butt smooch bandwagon this morning. So <laughs> the, the problem we have with our government is our Congress has given away its power to the executive branch. I mean, if, if you just, if, if people would, would think about it, in, in 2021-22, Congress passed less than 500 laws. But the ABC departments passed over 6,200 regulations and rules that put a burden on small business and the taxpayer to the tune of about $359 billion. And now they want to tax the rich. I mean, they, they can't go after, I understand wanting to tax more. And, and I'm if, if they would pay down the, the, the debt, I'd, I'd give up 10% of my Social Security. I'd give up 10% more in taxes. But if they would dedicate it to paying down the, deficit, or the debt, not the deficit, they need to pass a balanced budget amendment. But Congress, look at what they're doing yesterday, International Women's Day. What, what was Jill Biden doing? Giving out an International Woman's Award to a biological man. If, if that isn't in your face against everything that we as conservative Christians believe in, I don't know what is, and this is all intentional. What they did at the Capitol was intentional. They withheld all that information. And I watched that testimony by that Marine from Afghanistan where they couldn't, they, they found the, the bomber and they couldn't get permission to shoot him with the sniper. I sat there and cried watching that. Because that man was in pain, and they wouldn't give him permission to to shoot and to kill thirteen of his comrades. 
I mean, this government we have is out of control, and the only people that can control it is us. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. I mean, and, and once again, I, 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 I believe that I have an obligation. And mine is small. Tucker's is much larger than mine. Rush's was much larger than mine. But I do believe that I have an obligation and a responsibility to, I don't want to say, I'm not a pastor. I'm not leading a church. I guess I'm a band leader of a choir that gets together every single morning and discuss the um, the events of politics in America as we perceive them to be. But but I do believe, Rev, that, that I have a responsibility, an obligation to inform our citizens to begin to realize the magnitude of their government's policy deceptions. I mean, I really and truly believe that. And, and I, you know, it should be the job of the AP or the New York Times or the Washington Post, but they've chosen not to do that. And I think at the core of an America firster, I mean, if you aren't America firster, you really can't understand this. I, I tell a lot of people a lot of times, if you aren't a Gamecock or a Tiger, you can't rationalize how you feel on that Saturday. I mean, you really can't. If you didn't grow up in the rivalry, if it doesn't kind of, I mean, if your blood doesn't bleed garnet or orange or whatever, but, but if you understand that rivalry and you go to that stadium that Saturday, there's something different. I mean, th- th- there's something you feel in your bones. Well, I feel in my bones that, that the majority of us America firsters, and the reason I can feel it is I'm an America firster. I'm highly skeptical of our government. I don't trust our government, and I don't believe these are policy mistakes. I mean, I could live with that. I understand that the world gets extremely complicated. Governing a big-ass nation gets extremely complicated. I understand that. I accept that Republicans are going to make mistakes. Democrats are going to make mistakes. The media calls them out on the carpet about this calculus you did on taxes or, or higher education or student, whatever. I mean, there, there's a myriad and multitude of issues that the government will try to deal with and address uh, the best they know how. But I don't believe the government are making policy mistakes. I think they're policy deceptions. And I think the deceptions are based in an unbelievable desire to be in power and enrich themselves. So it's money and power, and it's not loyalty to the people. It's loyalty to themselves. It's the uniparty. It's the cathedral. It's the establishment. And nobody's held those people into account. And I think America Firsters are, are, are by their very nature, skeptical, a little bit contrarian, uh, you know, probably outsiders are a little bit offended by the nature of government and how they play the game inside the beltway. I've always wished I could come up with a kind of kind of an analytical model of what people should get out of our GDP. I mean, our GDP is $25 trillion, somewhere there about. Rev gets a small piece. I get a small piece. Um, J.P. Morgan gets a bigger piece. Um, you know, Tesla gets a bigger piece. Uh, we have all these segments of our economy. I've always wondered that if we didn't have, I mean, if we weren't ruled by money and power and loyalty to themselves, I wonder what a plumber would make in relation to a Wall Street banker. I mean, the majority of employment opportunities or occupations, the majority of occupations, I mean, I've correlated this. I've seen tri- I mean, graphs. Your alliance and allegiance to government traces with your ability to earn more money. I mean, if I, were, if I had a kid, and my, well, I do. I mean, I got a, a sophomore is at the Dartmoor School of Business. If I were giving her the fairest advice 
It would be to align yourself with a business that lobbies government. Find a business that lobbies government and kind of put your anchor there because you're always going to be on the good side of these policy deceptions. Once again, not policy mistakes. I'm not beating up on industries or, or sectors that make a lot of money. Some deserve to make a lot of money. Some don't. Some absolutely do not deserve to get a, a share of the GDP commiserate with what they contribute to the GDP. But when you look at uh, kind of insider outsider, a lot of that is part of the Trump movement. And, and what I want to do is get away from calling it the Trump movement, but rather the America first movement. It can't be about a single man. It's got to be about a, a multitude of people who believe that um, the government's policy deceptions are not mistakes. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, great show. I, I kind of disagree slightly with Joe. I like I like his comments, but he says uh, $379 billion is uh, lost in uh, the regulations and fees and such. And I think the drag on the economy and the total, the, the total effect is probably closer to a trillion dollars. Uh, that uh, these unelected bureaucrats are just uh, making up uh, regulations and in a lot of cases have no idea what the consequences of them will be. And the other thing is there's a lot we can do, I, I believe, that can be done, but it seems like people are kind of in a trance or they every morning they get up and take a stupid pill or something because they, we keep doing stupid things like the situation at the border. The first thing you need to do is shut the door, shut the border, and then work out what you got to do as far as filtering people out and, and that sort of thing and uh, getting control on these uh, these drugs. This is, this is not a new problem. We've had this problem for 60, 70 years or more. And the... the uh, final thing is that people people i think they've just got to wake up because we have put the people that that can't see certainly can't navigate in charge of guiding and piloting the ship that is just stupid we've got to stop that and i don't know how we get through to these uh people that want to elect people like good old joe biden I, I think uh, many of us knew he was a crook, and and it, that was just as plain as day is to uh, people that uh, looked at him and looked at his career. Mike, we got to take a break. We've got John Decker on the other side back in just a few moments. I guess there was a period in my time I would have been a member of the credentialed class. I've never been a member of the distinguished class, but but I do, I guess, Rev, I faked it long enough <laughs> to be um, a former elected official and all these um, ah, what am I trying to say? The, the, uh, the notoriety that goes along, sure. uh, both bad and good, both good, and, both good and bad, but, but we have distinguished guests on our show. One of our distinguished guests is a guy kind enough to join us every week when he's available and he's made himself, um, available nearly every Thursday since we, um, started our relationship as a great television, senior national editor, White House correspondent, John Decker, John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. So you're going the extra mile today. I understand you're in Indian Wells, um, California, um, on behalf of a board meeting 
of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, of which you are a board member. Am I getting that right, John? You got that 100% correct. That is that is the reason why I am out at Indian Wells, California. And there's a tennis tournament happening here as well. It's called the BNP Paribas Open. Uh, it's a big tournament right after the Grand Slams. This is what most players consider to be the biggest uh, crown jewel in what they're going after on a yearly basis. Uh, Novak Djokovic, by the way, not here. He's the number one player in the world right now, but uh, he's unvaccinated. And he, because of that, he cannot get into the country because of a rule that exists, which prohibits foreigners uh, who are unvaccinated from entering the U.S. John, I don't want to ask your personal opinion, but what does the tennis world make of Djokovic not being allowed uh, to come into the United States? Well, it depends who you ask that question. Uh, Certainly the leaders of the tennis world would very much like to have Novak Djokovic uh, here in California uh, because he is a draw. He's the number one player in the world. Uh, It draws a crowd to have the number one player in the world playing in your tournament. Uh, And uh, they feel that uh, it's an unfair rule given that, let's face it, if you uh, are out of the country, you're a U.S. citizen, you come back in, you're unvaccinated, no problem at all. Uh, you can enter the U.S. So uh, they feel it unfairly targets people like Novak Djokovic. And then you also have players who would like to you know, play the best of the best. Uh, they would like to see a Novak here so that they could you know, perhaps take an opportunity uh, to beat the number one player in the world. But again, depends who you ask uh, that particular question. You uh, obviously have people on the opposite side saying rules are rules and uh, that is the rule, and he, if he can't abide by it, then he shouldn't be permitted to enter into the U.S. Okay, I've got to ask you this. You're a t- tennis aficionado, apparently. Um, I played a little bit back in the day. Um, I remember the Wood Rackets, Borg, and McEnroe would be the highlight of my life in tennis and um, and watching tennis matches. In the grand scheme of things, where does Djokovic land? Is he the greatest tennis player that ever lived? Well, he's right up there. I I don't know the answer to that. You know, I mean, he uh, has a winning record against both uh, Roger Federer, who's also in that conversation, and uh, Rafael Nadal, also in that conversation. So uh, I I think it really depends. It depends upon who you ask that very question. Uh, To me, you know, I've seen him uh, on his best days. I've seen him on his not-so-great days, but that's like all athletes. Uh, Overall, He's in the conversation to be called the greatest uh, tennis player, male tennis player of all time, for sure. No question about it. Let's move on to, um, I guess, one of the most controversial political issues in America today, and that is anything that uh, remotely touches Fox News. I mean, they are a they are a monster. I mean, they're behemoth in the political media world. Um, they have an issue with a Dominion lawsuit. Explain from a lawyer's perspective, John, what's in play here. Well, that's right. So uh, as you point out, I'm a lawyer, and this is a lawsuit which will get underway next month in terms of the trial itself uh, in mid-April, April the 17th. It's a defamation lawsuit that Dominion Voting Systems has brought against Fox, Fox News, uh, Fox Corporation. It's uh, a billion-dollar-plus defamation lawsuit, and they're saying that Fox News knew that what they – were broadcasting on its airs, airwaves was wrong, and because they knew it was wrong and yet continued to question uh, whether 
or not the voting systems that were used in vote in voting precincts all the all over the country manufactured by uh, Dominion voting systems because of that uh, they uh, should have to uh, pay Dominion uh, for broadcasting defamatory uh, statements made about Dominion over the course of nearly two months in the aftermath of the November 2020 election. John Fox's biggest star is Tucker Carlson. Tucker is not a journalist, but rather a political pundit, a provocateur, hosts a a kind of an opinion-based news show that garners a large, large audience. He probably is one of the most noted voices in conservative America. Tucker has made a lot of news recently by releasing certain footage to the public that hadn't been released before. Um, as someone who spends a lot of his time inside uh, the Beltway, Tucker's not so popular there, seems to be far more popular outside of the Beltway. What do we make of that story? Well, he is popular. I think he's the most popular uh, personality at Fox. Uh, I think he, his show is uh, consistently the number one rated program on cable television. Uh, that being said, he has over the course of the past week, uh, shown a different version of what happened on January 6th that is uh, at odds, as you know, with the truth. And it's not just me saying that. It's Republican senators like Tom Tillis uh, calling it BS, uh, you know. But, but surely, me, John, they could be at odds with the truth. I mean, the video, I mean, I watched every moment of the show, and I really tried to give both sides the benefit of the doubt. What has Tucker been fundamentally dishonest about? Well, it, it, you could find clips of, let's just do another example. You could find clips of, uh, as you know, there, there's a, I could go through lots of examples of this, uh, of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a police beating, uh, you know, of Rodney King. And you just show a clip of his car stopping, and you just end it there, right? And you say, see, no problem, no problem at all. Uh, what, what's the problem? What did he do wrong? Or, you know, you, uh, up in Minneapolis, the same thing. Car stop, person gets out of the car, no problem. But then if you don't show the actual police beating, you're missing the entire story. And so it's, it's not uh, a fair uh, depiction in terms of what happened on January 6th when you don't see people. I don't know if you're aware of this or you spoke with um, uh, people who were in the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Individuals, I mean, it, this strikes me as just so odd that Kevin McCarthy uh, has no problem with it. Individuals went into his office and defecated throughout the entire office, uh, spread feces over uh, his walls. I mean, these were not people that were tourists. These were people that were violating the law. And if you violate the law, as we've seen, people get prosecuted for that. And that's exactly what's happened. The DOJ has had a nearly 100% success rate because they show video of people actually breaking the law, which is not what Tucker Carlson has been showing over the course of this past week on his program. Um, Jacob Chansley's lawyer was on Tucker's show last night and said the government withheld any footage that Tucker has shown as a lawyer. Is, is that, I mean, is that a prosecutable offense? I mean, does the government not owe someone charged with a crime uh, an opportunity to defend them. That's exculpatory information. I mean, QAnon Shaman yeah. is walking around the Capitol with Capitol City police officers, kind of acting as tour guides for, you know, 30 or 45 minutes. And the lawyer representing Chansley, QAnon Shaman, said that that footage was never made available to him by the government. Does the government have a well, legal that's... obligation 
to provide that footage. They do. And that's based upon a Supreme Court decision. Uh, you must, as uh, a, a, in this case, a prosecutor, hand over to uh, the defense attorneys exculpatory information uh, as part of the discovery process. And if indeed uh, the government did not provide that information to um, Mr. Chansley's lawyers, then they violated the law, they violated the Constitution. Uh, and what Mr. Chansey's lawyers can do is they can file um, a lawsuit against the federal government in this regard, if indeed that's the case. I think this is my take. I think that this individual, the lawyer that was on Tucker's show last night, is playing for uh, the, the television cameras when he says that. If there's something to be said for his, his claims, his allegations, then he'll file a lawsuit to back it up. And so we'll see if indeed he does that. What do you make of the Republicans now wanting to reopen another select commission to further investigate what may or not may or may not have happened on January 6th? Well, they can do that. That's their right. You know, Republicans control the House of Representatives. They can do that. My take, and you tell me if, if you think my take is right, Ken, um, my take is people want to move on. I mean, my gosh, <laughs> we saw what happened all of last year. I, I think people want to look forward. I don't think it does anything in terms of improving the lives of the American public to focus so much and go look backwards in terms of January 6th. Uh, I think people want to move forward. We're dealing with high inflation. That's a huge issue for most Americans. That's what Congress, uh, for the most part, should be talking about is uh, talking about how to improve the lives of American citizens and not you know, look backwards in terms of what happened a few years ago. Yeah, and I, and I do believe this with all sincerity that if – the committee had included um, Republicans that didn't vote to impeach Donald Trump, the country could move on. But I think there is a lot of animus toward the commission by not extreme Republicans, but many Republicans who I speak with that don't think the commission ever was serious about getting to the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, because they didn't allow Jim Jordan and Representative Banks to sit as Kevin McCarthy uh, proposed. So, so, yeah, I wish the country could move on. I just find it hard to believe we will until there's a a commission that all of America believes thoroughly vetted what did happen on January 6th. Thank you, John. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Ken. Uh, interesting. Great television. Senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker. John is um very kind and gracious with his time uh, to join us. I don't want to move on. I mean, I don't want to get confrontational with John, but but I have no interest in moving on. I would be more than willing and probably more inclined to move on if I believed that the January 6th Select Committee was all about getting to the truth. And and I have no idea what's true and not about, you know, um, Chansley's lawyer saying that that um that footage was not made available. But if it was not, I mean, if there's exculpatory um, information not made available uh, to both sides, the government has a problem. And, and you know, I mean, I would imagine John would be more sympathetic to government than I am. That's his job. I mean, he's inside of the Beltway. He's been there for many, 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 many years. Um, he's an accomplished journalist when it comes to um, operating inside of that domain. Um, I don't trust that domain. I don't trust the Republicans inside the Beltway any more than I trust the Democrats inside the Beltway. And I think the great mistake that Pelosi made was letting Cheney and Kinzinger represent the Republicans instead of Banks and Jordan. Because I think had Banks or Jordan been allowed to serve on that committee, we would have seen the footage 
that nobody saw until Monday night when Tucker Carlson, and, and it looks to me that Tucker's more motivated than he's ever been. I mean, it really does to me. I mean, there, there's a fire in his belly, so to speak, that is easily detectable. He's a guy that is probably in jeopardy at Fox News because Fox has tried to play this thing um, both ways. Fox has a very um, large and loyal audience of conservatives. Fox operates in a world where um, the decisions are not made by and large by conservatives, um, shareholders, and and bankers. And uh, I just got to believe that Tucker um, is an issue with Fox News as we speak. Um, what, three, four, five million viewers a night? He's good for business well, he's, right he's, now. He's unbelievably good and if, for and business. And if his goal is to draw attention to his show and attention to the network, mission accomplished this week. But but they depend a lot on political alliances and allegiances, sure. as any big business would. And I would imagine there's been a call. I'm speculating, but I can do that. I'm not a journalist. I'm speculating. Um, well, I'll, I'll be a journalist. You ready? An anonymous source told me. Um, I mean, that seems to be the standard for Easy journalism to say, isn't today. It? Yeah, I mean, that's the standard for journalism. An anonymous source told me that um, some of the J.P. Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, uh, you know, some of the Wall Street crowd were um, talking to members of the tra- – you know where I'm headed. I mean, the the cartel of, um, of big business and big government and then finding somebody who may um, expose – some of the antics for what they are. And um, and I think when John says that um, because Mitch McConnell says uh, what he says, it's the truth. De- Decker, in my opinion, is giving far more benefit of the doubt to the Mitch McConnells of the world than I do. Uh, there, there's a reason Mitch McConnell is the least popular Republican of Republican voters. I mean, you talk about something that's hard to justify, and, and, and it grates me to no end. I mean, it really and truly irks me to, to a degree that I'm not comfortable with how I feel. When, when I think of the Republican Party today, and I think I have a pretty good understanding of where it is, um, it's not where I am. I mean, there, there are a lot of Republicans who aren't where I am. I'm full bore America first. I'm highly skeptical of anything that comes out of an establishment Republican's mouth. But I accept that I'm not. Um, I mean, there, there, there are several avenues, several lanes of traffic going, calling themselves Republicans, and I'm not. Uh, I'm probably not the dominant voice when it comes to where the party needs to go and how it needs to assemble itself. But, but it's hard for anybody to argue that Mitch McConnell deserves to be the leader of the Republican Party at the national level. I mean, McConnell represents a small minority of Republicans who still ascribe to the notions of, you know, um, just rampant neoconservatism, uh, no fiscal restraint or fiscal discipline, uh, McConnell did do yeoman's work on some of the court issues, but, but the day-to-day grind required by political leadership, I mean, he's just not up for the task. And I think he's a guy, very few words, very few antics, but for him to bring the sheet, I mean, I don't know if you saw this or not, Red, but he's waving around mm-hmm. the official report from the chief of the Capital City Police, and he says, I concur, you know, with what the chief uh, says. Ah, that's just not the guy I want leading the party at the national level. But I don't get to choose who leads the party at the national level. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Rev, I've got a question for you as we begin this next hour. What's the difference in soliciting and begging? Because <laughs> I'm concerned we're not line. soliciting subscribers, but rather begging for subscribers. I yeah. mean, is, is that's a very blurred and fine line. I think it is. Okay, and good And we're deal. probably going to cross it. Well, I mean, um, blurring fine lines 
and um, and having Patrick in the right. So so we're he's very comfortable at the blurring of of the lines. Patrick McLaughlin has been uh, kind enough to join us weekly on on different days. It's normally been Thursday. I think there was a Wednesday I showed up because of his schedule. But we have. I'm um, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. And Patrick is is of the Wakila Law Firm, and Stephen wants to come in and argue with me about inflation. And we'll do that um, sooner than later. I tell people all the time. I mean, I like serving up the Kool Aid, and I like having an audience that buys into ninety percent of what I say. But but it's more stimulating for me when the Jeffs of the world call or, or the Stevens of the world come in, and we see the world fundamentally different. And there's no disrespect. There's no disdain. It can get argumentative, and it can get testy at times. But but I believe that if we're going to get America to a better place, we're going to be forced to have some of those testy conversations. I mean, I'm not talking about throwing punches in a damn bar. I'm not doing that, and I don't think anybody else um, desires of that. But but the, the point I made this morning, um, you know, are we the world's police or are we a, a, a destabilizing bully? I've got three texts from buddies who said, you should be ashamed you'd even say something like that. No, you should be ashamed that you're bothered that I would say something um, like that. But Stephen, excuse me, um, Patrick has been kind enough to come in and join us and um, and kind of walk through the uh, the Murdoch trial uh, that spelled Murdoch. Alex Murdoch, known as Alec Murdoch, is now um, incarcerated in Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I, I, let's do this to begin with. So let's, if you don't mind, kind of the cliff note on when the trial began, uh, what your feelings, emotions, intuitions were as the child, as the trial progressed, did anything change about where you thought we were headed? And eventually we get to a, what, one of the longest trials in South Carolina history and a 30 or 45 minute jury deliberation, which was very unusual to me. But, but Patrick, from your personal perspective, the trial begins you have a lot more intuition about those things than I do. What well, what changed and morphed and found its way into your uh, understanding of where we where you thought we were headed? Well, I don't know that that much played out. That was surprising. You could, you kind of you know listen. It's Alex and all his misdeeds have been very publicized for you know the last year leading into this trial. So you knew that you knew he's a bad guy. You knew he was a liar. You knew he was the thief. Um, through the pre-trial motions that had been argued and had been publicized, quite, you know, because this case has been followed since he was charged, um, you knew that the the state wanted to to get the financial crime stuff in. Um, so I I don't know that there was much surprise there. You know, I would imagine kind of really the the one thing that neither side knew about going into it that wound up playing a pretty significant role was um, the GM data when it got provided by GM in the middle of trial. And that GM data, of course, was a very large part of that timeline that, that uh, sled agent Rothowski or something like that, that he put together. Um, and, you know, that, that timeline was pretty damning to, to Alec. Um, other than that, the one thing that, that, that came out at trial that I, I don't think anyone knew about who wasn't involved in the case, you know, representing it and hadn't seen the discovery that had been provided prior to trial was the uh, Snapchat video. So those are the two things that, that are, that were the most damning to Alec during trial. And, um, if, 
if you kind of listen to some of the interviews that some of the jurors who have gone public um, since the uh, trial has been over have talked about, those were both, you know, they, they were very strong. It was, that, that was all strong evidence in the state's, on the state's behalf. So, you know, I, I, think, I think everyone was, was surprised at the shortness uh, of the deliberation. Were you? Um, you know, it, it's easy to say in hindsight, uh, no, but, um, you, you thought maybe it would have taken longer, but they obviously did it. The one thing I said consistently when we came on the show and we talked about it, we were talking about witnesses. We thought how effective or ineffective we thought they were. And the one thing we always said was, well, we're not in the room. We can't see how the jury is reacting. And, um, and if you, I'll, I'll listen to an interview of, uh, Mr. Waters uh, the other day and 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 he made a comment that you know they they had the benefit of watching those jurors so they felt pretty confident that the jury was buying what they were selling and that certainly seems to be the case um the the jurors have said that they took an initial poll when they went in there and it was I believe nine to three with two being not guilties and one being unsure and then within 45 minutes, that jury, they, they were able to sway those three people into to being guilty. What do, you, what do you make of the late juror being replaced, that late in the game? I mean, you, you've been in courtrooms, you've been in trials, you in this in this profession. Or are we to read anything between those lines? Well, you know, all I know is what was reported, you know, in the news and what we saw in open court when Judge Newman addressed why he was removing that juror um, I, I think that it was you know that obviously the defense uh, took issue with removing that juror and and objected to it they they apparently had a hearing in camera which means you know back in the chambers um, outside of the public and apparently the defense had raised objections that in that during that hearing about the fact that um, this whether or not there was any for lack of a better phrase, misconduct by this juror, um, which Judge Newman seemed to say that he, there wasn't, but apparently there was a, enough of a question of what had occurred that he felt to uh, maintain the integrity of the, the jury and, and the trial process. He needed to replace that juror with an alternate. Um, but he made a point of saying that, you know, out there on the record when they came out that he didn't think the juror had, done any misconduct but there certainly was you know it i don't know how wise it was for the attorney general whoever decided who was going to investigate that to use people who had been witnesses during the trial against alec to do it um so so that's certainly that's just one more iron to throw into the fire that is going to be the appeal i'm sure well the you mentioned judge newman a second ago he got rave reviews by the general public. I don't know what makes a good judge or not. I mean, he appeared to be very cerebral. He appeared to be very in control of his emotions. Uh, you're, I mean, you're more familiar with what makes a judge good or not so good. Um, what do you make as a trial lawyer of the performance of Judge Newman? Well, I mean, you know, Judge Newman is has long been considered just, you know, what. Uh, a very good judge here in the state. I mean, listen, J Judge Duman uh, enjoys um, uh, arguments. 
Uh, he, you could get that from him. You know, he he'll put. It, you know, as a lawyer, you appear in front of Judge Newman. Uh, you and your clients need to be prepared to get get prodded a little. Um, and you could see that come out d- during the trial. You know, Judge Judge Newman likes to to put lawyers to the question and make them support their arguments, and and uh, he he enjoys that. Um, but you know, I, clearly that he was assigned this this case specifically by the chief justice and there was a reason for that and and the reason is because you know one thing that uh, i'm sure that the chief justice probably knew when he assigned judge newman was was judge newman was going to make the judiciary look good uh, by the way he comported himself and the way he comport he, he oversaw the courtroom the way he oversaw the trial and I think when you talk about the rave reviews he has gotten, that's that's part and parcel of it. We we read, I have, that there was some information found during this investigation that could potentially be interesting in other investigations. The Smith, um, the Smith issue. I mean, I, I don't know what to make of these. Um, there was some. I mean, once again, this is a rumor mill. And if you don't want to comment, don't comment. You're a trial lawyer. You got a reputation. I don't want to harm that reputation. You already harmed it by coming by coming on the show. But I want. To, I don't want to kill it. I mean, I don't mind harming it. I don't want to kill his his reputation. But I mean, is it over now? I mean, Alec maintains his innocence. There's an appeal in process. It is. I mean, once a guilty verdict is decided by a jury, is that the end of it? Well, I don't. Uh, certainly it's not the end of it because we've got the 90 some odd financial charges he's still facing uh you've got um cousin eddie uh sitting out there himself facing charges from this those charges are still pending those haven't been dismissed that's not over yet um is the unsolved smith murder or the the unsolved uh, smith case i don't want to call it a murder the unsolved smith case the stephen smith is that a tentacle to this story well, you know, throughout this process of this um, entire affair coming public and these charges being brought against Alec, that was one of the things that occurred was they reopened this investigation into the, the death of Stephen Smith. I, I, I know nothing more than what's been reported publicly on that case. Um, I assume it's still an open investigation, and I'm sure if they – find enough evidence to charge somebody, they would do so. Um, but don't know the answer to that. The, the interesting thing that I thought about trial was you got Alex up there on the stand and he's in a situation where he can't take the fifth because his, he is fronting to this jury. I'm coming clean. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm telling you all, all y'all the truth now. Why don't you ask him where he was getting the pills from? Why don't you ask him? who he was giving money to. I mean, why don't you take that opportunity to go down that hole? So why wouldn't they? I don't know. I have no idea. I sure would have yeah. if I was prosecuting the case. Because you know? you'll probably never get that chance again, right? And who knows? He Listen, he may not tell you the truth, but he's going to have to say something because he can't take the fifth in that situation, you know, because his, his entire why he's on the stand is – is trying to get the jury to believe that he is now finally coming clean about everything. One of the interesting situations of this, and I'm probably reaching too far and trying to make it more complicated than it really is, but there's a deep distrust of the man. You and I were talking about the Bernie Sanders voter and the Donald Trump voter. 
but they disagree on a lot of things about paying off student debt or not or higher education or not. But they, they have this commonality that they, they don't trust the man very much. Uh, Bernie's crowd doesn't trust the man for one reason. Trump's crowd doesn't trust the man for another reason. So I always felt that when, when, the, when the prosecution with the full weight of the government behind it, um, they're perceived as the man. And I'm, I'm playing juror for a second. So I'm a juror. And I look at that prosecution, and, and I'm thinking, okay, in the, in, in the balance of power, they've got it all. I mean, they've got unlimited resources, that they've got a, a budget of which hardly anybody could ever match. But Alec was also perceived as the man. You know, the, um, the family that ran that district forever and a day. Is it, is it reasonable to think that there were a juror or two who got confounded by that? Okay, um, I'm a Bernie Sanders or a Don. I can't tell people I am, but as a juror, I mean, I have a political bias. You do. We all do. So I'm on that jury, and I'm sympathetic to the Sanders-Trump crowd. I, I believe that the AG is the man. But I look at Murdoch and say, well, damn, he's the man, too. Is that weird, or is that a uh, – am, am I trying to make it too complicated? No, no. Um, listen, it, it is a very uh, oft-used tactic in defending uh, someone against criminal charges. Is, you know, here they are, just regular old little, little fella – and here's the big bad government coming after him. I mean, listen, if if you do criminal defense work, that is that is a club in your bag, and it's one you use a lot. Um, but you're right. The ability to use that was curtailed pretty strongly in this case, and that that's probably, to a certain extent, one reason why the defense didn't pull it out the bag was because, you're right, the Murdoch's have been the man in that county for a very long time. Um, and you know, that, that limited their ability to try to make that argument. I mean, they, they, they touched on it some, but you can't get up there and claim you're just a poor old little guy. And here's the big bad government. When the truth of the matter is that jury all knows it. you, you've been the man in that County for over a hundred years, you know, what do you make of, or what is the takeaway of the South Carolina judicial system? Um, it was on full display. And all of its splendor, good, bad, indifferent. What what is your takeaway? How did the judicial system stand up to the publicity and scrutiny it received that it hardly ever does? Well, I I mean I I hope that it can't came off well. Um, you know, I am obviously biased because this is how I've made my living for you know the last twenty plus years. Um, I mean. Cre- the judges that I appear in front of and, and we have here in this state, by and large, are, are considerate, they're smart, they want to do the right thing, and, um, and you know, we're a small bar. South Carolina, you know, it probably seems to a lot of folks like we have too many lawyers. We, we don't have very many, and it's a very small bar, and um, I think that more oftentimes than not, we get it right in this state. Uh, but there's no question you asked me uh, one of the of previous visits whether or not, you know, the judicial system had had, had come off looking bad because of all this. Certainly, uh, the, our entire system looked bad given the fact that Alex Murdoch was allowed to steal and, and um, harm his clients the way he did, that there certainly is 
is a lot of uh, allegations and some evidence to support the fact that he was able to use his position as an assistant solicitor to um, potentially try to influence things. And so all those things look bad. I would hope that after six weeks of trial, um, certainly the narrative that was that was pushed going into this trial publicly that, you know, the good old boy system and that Alex Murdoch had been a beneficiary of that system for so long and people questioning whether or not he could be held to account and justice would, would prevail. Um, if you bought into that narrative going in, you would like to think that the way this played out hopefully makes you feel better uh, about that narrative. Well explained. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila Law Firm is here. We're talking about the Murdoch trial and then really and truly the state's judicial system in its entirety. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila Law Firm is with us. We've talked a lot about the Murdoch case. I think we've put uh, our best effort forward in trying to understand, walk through. Uh, we end up with a guilty verdict. He is um, consecutive life sentences. Am I right? Correct. So his life will, I mean, he'll, he'll spend the rest of his life behind bars. Yes. So why try him on the financial crimes? I mean, I, I understand there's a formality. I get that. I accept that. But there's nothing going to change about the fact that he spends the rest of his life in prison. Could there be discovery and 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 him offer some explanation as to where the money is? Because I've still uh, I still believe, and I'll get you your take on this. I can do math. There's still money that has not properly been accounted for am i right or wrong or am i barking up a valid tree I, well i i i certainly don't don't know that it's been accounted for because i you know the the idea that you were spending upwards of 10 million dollars on due to opioid addiction is is hard to fathom um the 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 alleged amounts that he he claimed he was taking during trial um hard to fathom that someone could take that amount of opioids and um and be a functioning uh, uh live one be be a functioning lawyer of some degree of success um is hard to believe so yeah that's the question that's still out there where's I, the money i'm gonna i'm gonna parse words for a second and it's probably unfair to you but you're you're a big guy you can handle it and you probably enjoy some of these um controversials so does 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 every defendant should every defendant in our judicial system be entitled to representation or deserve representation? I know I'm mincing words here, but I do believe, um, Patrick, that everybody is entitled to be effectively represented. I'm not sure I buy into everybody deserves effective representation. Respond to that. Well, my response would be even if you think that someone – is so terrible, such a horrible human being. I don't know that this person deserves representation. My response to that would be you have to look at it as that person receiving representation. Look at it as it's not for that person. It's for the rest of us. It's it's for society. It's for victims, right? You have a a horrible crime and the person is going to be tried for it. If that person doesn't have good representation, then the prosecution of that person 
could wind up being incredibly flawed. It is the the uh, the crucible of cross cross examination is a phrase that that our courts have used before as the greatest truth truth seeking mechanism known to man. The crucible cross examination, i.e., somebody challenging what you're saying is how you get to the truth. And so if you have a criminal prosecution where the person is not adequately represented, you're setting yourself up for that prosecuting being, prosecution being flawed or that prosecution being overturned. I mean, listen, there's a lot of times when there are cases where it's clear the person did it, it's clear it's a bad crime, it's clear that there are victims who are really legitimately hurt and will never recover from it. And if, as a society, we don't give the person accused of that crime adequate representation, then what are we doing to those victims? Are they going to have to relive going through another prosecution once that gets the initial one gets overturned? You know, sometimes there is very much the the job of the state is just to protect the integrity of the prosecution. There are some cases where it's like there ain't no way they should lose, right? This is a knockdown, uh, uh, you know, e- easy layup. You should win this. Now the question is, are you going to do everything right, dot all your I's and cross all your T's so that this prosecution stands up on down the road? And that is part of what a good defense does, is they make the state dot their I's and cross their T's. They ensure that the person gets everything they're entitled to get under the law and the Constitution they receive all those protections. And then if the person is convicted after that, then we all can have at hopefully some, um, some belief that justice prevailed and that the system worked. And if you don't have that, then eventually you, you set yourself up for people questioning the results of what happened. Is the application of justice distorted by plea bargains? Do we plead too many cases? I mean, nobody forces anybody to plead a case. People agree. They're, you know, I got too much risk here. Uh, you know, I think I got you here. I mean, you're, you're a lawyer. But but I, I think about the application of justice. And I'll use the FBI or the government for a second. Um, if I'm little old Joe, and that's the big bad federal government, and the big bad federal government comes after me, I'm far more inclined to plead to something, whether I believe I did it or not, for fear of risking something else. Is that a distortion in the application of justice? Well, certainly, you know, under, under the, the two different systems we have, state uh, criminal justice systems and the federal criminal justice system, man, the weight is on you when you face federal charges to plea um, because, quite frankly, because of sentencing guidelines. You know, uh, federal sentencing is governed by the guidelines, and if you commit a a crime and, and there's all kind of factors that go into it and that places you here on on the sentencing guideline chart whereas if you accept responsibility and you plea you can move it down to here um, but is that the application of justice well it, it's it's making a deal it is patrick well it, it it is it is acknowledging the reality that it that it, it makes it a lot harder to go to court and try to to challenge what the government is doing, um, because you you know there's a there's a thing that people uh, a phrase that we use in criminal justice trial tax, i.e. Uh, if you plead to something, 
this is the sentence you're looking at. If you don't plead something, you go to to trial, you may get trial taxed, you know, i.e. you may get lit up on sentencing. Um, so that, that, that is certainly, that's always been around. That's that the potential for that will always be there. Um, and as a practical matter, the prosecution, if they, if they want to move the case with a plea is going to make you a plea that is going to entice you to accept it. Right. So it needs to be a plea that is going to entice you with a, a less risk. Okay. Why would you accept a plea if there's, if, if they're not going to give you anything, you can get the same thing going to trial, then everything would be a trial. Um, but I mean, listen, we have to have pleas. I've said it before Sure. without pleas, the system would grind to a halt and the vast majority of, of criminal cases wind up playing, uh, more so in the federal system than in the state system. But still, even in the state system, the vast majority of criminal charges wind up, uh, plea out. Um, that's, that's, you know, and a lot of times people will attack, um, prosecutors or will attack judges about pleas and sentencing and stuff like that. But the truth of the matter is that's the way the system works and that's the way the system has to work or it would grind to a halt. Last question. I'll let you get out of here. Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila law firm is with us. Do you like the way we pick judges in South Carolina? Um, there, there's a debate there'll be three politicians sitting where you are tomorrow. I'm a former politician. We debate nearly every third Friday. Somebody will call and say, I don't like the appointing of judges by the General Assembly. I'd rather see an election process. Um, to be honest with you, I'll go on the record. If somebody paid me enough money, I could argue either side of that equation. Where, where do you stand as somebody who does spend a lot of time in the courtroom? A, a popular election of judges is absolutely insane, in my opinion. You do not... and. and my response to anybody who thinks that's a good idea would be that if you were charged with a crime and for whatever reason, um, people believed you did it and you didn't, it, would you want the person sitting in judgment, being able to make decisions about your case, decisions that could ultimately impact whether or not you are found guilty or not guilty, beholden to public opinion, you know? No, none of us would want it. Um, a very good friend of mine, um, lawyer, wonderful trial lawyer in, in, out of Manning, Sean Kent, uh, tried a, a very long, like month-long uh, murder trial in Georgia. And uh, um, they had, I believe they have popular election of judges there. But um, it, he was asked at the end of trial one day if he was coming to a fundraiser <laughs> for the judge. I mean, to me, that that that's just to say. Listen, there's a lot to criticize about about our system. Sure, it ain't perfect, but it's kind of like the line about democracy. It's the it's the best one yet. Um, and and it is a little bit. It it provides for a little bit of independence from from the public, just straight out public opinion. Um, but it still allows for judges to be removed. And we've seen there have been more judges in the last 10 years, I believe, that I've been practicing who have wound up get, getting coming off the bench either because they've realized they've read the writing on the wall and realized that they ain't going to get it again or for whatever reasons they, they've just decided to step down because they didn't think they would be able to be successful. So what is the takeaway, not to the Murdoch trial, but the fact that a family had so much influence over the legal system in a certain part of our state. 
Well, you, you know, th th that that setup was always unusual. I, I don't know of any other setup where you had, you know, the prosecution also running a, a bit being the name partner in a large civil firm for years. I mean, that that was, you know, that for lack of a better phrase, kind of grandfathered in. I, I don't know that you could have that now. Um, there would but you be, would agree we shouldn't have that. Well, th th there's certainly... It, it certainly lends itself to being challenged for impropriety and conflicts of interest. I mean, there's there's no question about that. Uh, it had happened so long ago and just continued forward that it it was uh, you know, it was the the exception to the way things are done throughout most of the state. So in Pamplico, we say sometimes it bees like that. So. <laughs> It's it right. like that in, uh, in Colleton <laughs> County. Thank you, my man. Yeah, man. Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila Law Firm may reach back out to him. Uh, some of these discussions are very interesting because um, the application of justice is one of the most complicated this American government does. We disagree about taxes and roads and bridges and education, but I'm telling you, man, the application of justice is one of the um, the central issues that our government deals with. Day it's, the one it's the one place where the little guy and still stand up to the government and say no and in the courtroom that can't happen anywhere else other than in our justice you'll system. get killed in the boardroom you'll get killed everywhere else you're right about that thank you my man yeah man we'll take a break back in a few Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number we've actually had a pretty productive day this morning we've talked so. about a myriad of topics and and subjects we've discussed the one thing that i've held in my pocket for the last couple of days is some of the fed comments and reporting um, about interest rates and inflation and, uh, you know, whatever it is the Fed does to keep the economy in some manageable um, condition or position. I went back and read. I mean, I don't want to confuse you. we got a guest here we'll get to in, in two seconds. But I went back and read, try to better understand the Case-Shiller Home Index. I mean, that's basically a, uh, a measurement of inflation or deflation in the housing market. Um, I mean, I, I'm in the development business to some degree. got a couple of partners, and we develop property. So I am interested in interest rates. I am interested in inflation or deflation of the residential and commercial property. During my, and this will play into my next uh, subject and guest who's on the, um, on the phone with us, but Rev, when I began trying to better understand the Case-Shiller Home Price Index, once again, I'll give you the thumbnail. I mean, there are 20 cities, there are 10 metrics, and it basically determines how much inflation or deflation there is in the housing market. I talked to a buddy of mine in real estate who is not a real estate agent. He's not a builder. He's in the appraisal evaluation business. Guess, I mean, this is a, a staggering statistic that he told me, and this will play into our, our issue that we'll talk about with our guest. 25% of all building residential building permits issued in South Carolina in the last two years were issued in Horry County. Let me say that again. <laughs> wow. 20, I mean, South Carolina has 46 counties. 25% of every residential building permit issued in the entire state was issued in Horry County. So, so the point I'm driving, um, I mean, it's got 2,000 multifamily permits. If you use the 2.3 per resident, you're talking about 20,000 people a year moving into Horry County. But I mean, they're about the same number of people dying as being born in Horry County. South Carolina, this ain't your grandmother's South Carolina. I mean, South Carolina historically has been very conservative, a very spiritual and religious base. When I ran for lieutenant governor, you didn't want to get crossed up with the business guys, the gun guys, and the church folk. I mean, that was just kind of the, I mean, those were the three big ingredients of winning Republican primaries. And, uh, and I think it's changing. 
And, I mean, some like it, some don't care much for it. But a part of the change has brought in a, uh, a conversation or debate about our blue laws. Once again, historically Southern, very biblical in, in their worldview. But when you look at the number in Horry County, and you look up and down the coast of South Carolina, from North Myrtle Beach or Little River all the way to Hilton Head, I mean, there's been a mass explosion of population that has added to our congressional delegation. It's added to our tax base. We're struggling with infrastructure along the coast. But when people move down here from somewhere else, they can't come to grips with why they can't buy booze on Sunday. And, and once again, you've got a very traditional South Carolinian, and you've got somebody who's like, what? what? This is a great state. I mean, this dynamic state, this great weather, this fast-growing population, and I can't buy a drink on Sunday. Somebody help me better understand that. Well, somebody who's in the middle of that conversation politically is our guest, Ed McMullen. Ed's a friend of mine. I uh, got to know Ed well during my campaign. He helped me along. And then we uh, reconnected during the Trump campaign. He ultimately got named ambassador to Switzerland by former President Donald Trump. Ed, good morning. How are you? Ken, I'm doing great. It's great to be with you again. Absolutely. You're always in the middle of something. So you're in the middle of um, of legislation that will allow for the more, I don't know, the, the, the more free-flowing of alcohol on Sunday. I'll let you explain to our listeners what you're doing, why you feel it's important. Well, Ken, you know that I've spent the bulk of my life in South Carolina here working on trying to get our General Assembly to do things that are right for South Carolinians, to get government out of our lives and let South Carolinians make decisions for themselves. And so I was asked to chair this campaign and be the spokesman. It's called Cheers, Let South Carolina Decide. And the great thing about this campaign is that there is legislation currently being considered in the South Carolina House and Senate uh, to give South Carolinians by community, not force them, but give them by community, the opportunity to get rid of those blue laws. They're prohibition era laws that definitely have a chilling effect on our economy. And um, we have uh, a referenda, if the bill goes through, a referenda can be chosen to be done by county, it can be done by community, by city, by town, and it doesn't force anyone to accept these new laws on Sunday sales of alcohol, but it does give them the option to have the referenda. So when you look at this situation, people might ask, well, why, why would we want to do this? Well, you'd want to consider it because particularly in Horry County and the PD, there's a great demand for Sunday sales because instead of having to get in your car and drive uh, up across the border or wherever you have to go to get Sunday alcohol, um, you're on the road or you have to go out to bars. And, but you can't sit home and, and watch TV or watch the Super Bowl if you've forgotten to go get your alcohol to, to, to make a cocktail for the for the evening. So these laws give you more opportunities to do that. And the great thing about it is a new study just done by two Clemson professors, Dr. Hansen and Dr. Sauer, reveals the fact that not only will it be better for the community to have the right to choose to have Sunday sales, but it also could generate an additional $2 million in state excise and sales tax revenues per year. And if that finding is projected out over 20 years, it could mean up to approximately 24 million and 48 million in state and local tax revenues over the next 10 and 20 years. That adds up to a lot of money. 
That's money that will stay in South Carolina rather than go across the borders where people go on Sunday to buy their alcohol. And then it doesn't mandate that anybody do anything. It just offers that as an alternative. A local government can, I mean, a local business owner can decide whether he wants to sell booze on Sunday or not. There is no mandate as part of this law. Ken, you're exactly right. No, what, what we wanted to do was make sure that South Carolinians who want that option are given that option and that when we can keep that money here in South Carolina to do things for South Carolinians, rather than Georgians and others who receive those monies, do things for South Carolinians with the tax money that would be generated, like building highways, helping schools, the normal things that happen when you have tax revenues. And tax revenues in Horry County and some of the coastal counties are extremely high from alcohol and wine and beer sales. So giving people that option, not mandating anything, because you're right, some communities have a feeling that this is not the thing they want to have. And if that's their choice, they don't need to have the referendum. So it's a wonderful option. It's truly South Carolinian, truly conservative, because it gives people the right to get government out of making decisions for them and has them making decisions for themselves. And, and Ed, the, the best way the public could involve themselves would be to call their their um their local representative, uh, whether Senate or House member, to find out where they stand on this legislation and encourage them to support the legislation. Absolutely. And there's also a website that we have, www.letscdecide.org, that can tell you where people stand, where the bill stands, some of the talking points that would give you detail to talk to legislators. Fortunately, in Horry County, most of the legislators are pretty solid on this issue. Um, but I think it's important for everyone to know when you've, you've been around government long enough to know, Ken, it's good to know when, when people support you, especially when you hear more than enough from those who don't, right? So if you support this, let your legislator know you support it. Uh, and, and definitely do that soon because that legislation is coming down the pike and likely to be debated fairly soon. Give me that website again one more time, Ed, if you don't mind. That is www.letscdecide.org. You can go on and sign up for uh, emails and things that will keep you apprised and informed on what's going on and help you make the case to get Sunday sales of liquor and alcohol in your community. Very well explained. Ed, good to hear from you. Thank you, my friend. Uh, I hope our, cra- our, cra- our paths cross um, more often than they have recently. Thank you, my man. I- I hope so, too, Ken. Thanks again. You're doing a great job, and great to talk with you this morning. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Ed McMullen, um, doing some PR work or public relations um, work on behalf of um, – I, I got to know Ed pretty well. Uh, Revno – I keep saying Revno. Revno <laughs> some of these things because I, I say some of these things off the air that I don't repeat on the air. When I when I express an interest in Trump and a couple of, a couple of early kind of lines of demarcation, I got a banker friend of mine who moved off to Austin. And, uh, I mean, he was my personal friend. He was my personal banker. I mean, he, he was the guy that um, kind of helped me in certain situations when I could make heads or tails of life. I mean, not just in my financial life, but in life in general. Became a very, very dear friend of mine. But he's measured. I mean, he's the competent soul. I'm, I'm incompetent and crazy and uh, my hair's on fire half of the time. So he sends me a text from Austin because I call Austin Little Russia. Little Moscow. And, you know, I gave him a hard time about, man, you were one of us until you moved out to Austin, Texas. 
and then you became a communist uh, once you moved out to little little Moscow. But but he sends me a text one day, and Rev knows the guy. He actually had a hand in me being on the radio. To be honest with you, he yeah. um helped negotiate or facilitate some of that deal. But uh, but he sends me a text one day, and he says, "Hey brother, what do you think of Trump?" <laughs> Question mark. And I immediately respond to him, "I'm for him." And he sent back, "Shocker." <laughs> in other words, of course you are. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. He said we were at dinner last night. I told some buddies of mine. I said, "Hey man, I got this guy formerly in politics, got thrown out of office. I I will guarantee you everything in my world that he is 100% on board with the Trump train because he loves disruption. He loves to watch people who aren't accustomed to chaos." squirm when chaos um, comes their way but but ed was very instrumental in my involvement with the trump campaign um we've had Corey lemondowski on the show Corey was um, trump's campaign manager very early on ed invited me to the charleston country club one afternoon and uh, it was about eight or ten or twelve of us and this was when trump was somewhat of a novelty and i'd expressed to ed um my disdain for the establishment my disdain for, for the status quo, and um, and I think Corey asked Ed, hey, give me eight or ten people that may listen to what I have to say when I come to South Carolina on behalf of Donald Trump being uh, a candidate for president. So I was invited, and I think Corey referenced that uh, that meeting when he called in our show about Trump. So we sit down about eight or ten or twelve of us and, um, and discuss the likelihood of Trump running and how he's going um, to win. And, uh, and, you know, Ed eventually leads the campaign. He becomes one of the chair members of the steering committee. And, um, and I guess as a payback, I mean, Henry and Ed got the best paybacks. I mean, Henry right. got the best payback because Henry was a big and early Trump supporter and Henry was Lieutenant governor. So, uh, Trump asked Henry, what do you want? Henry said, I don't want anything, but for her to give her something to do, talking about Nikki Haley, give her something to do so I can transition in the governorship, and Ed wanted to be an ambassador. But he didn't want to do any heavy lifting. He didn't want to be ambassador to Ukraine <laughs> or, or, or ambassador to Germany. Right. You know, give me, um, I think it was um, either Costa Rica or Switzerland, <laughs> and he ended up ambassador um, to Switzerland, but did a great job, and Ed and I have um, kept up somewhat with one another, and I, and I would imagine as the campaign, uh, the Trump 24 campaign, begins to make its way into South Carolina, will be um, kind of reconnected again. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Sam in Darlington. Good morning. Morning. Um, Ken, I got a little uh, a little thing off the subject of what we've been talking about, but something I think we're mostly interested in. Uh, this morning, Matt Taibbi is testifying sometime or shortly after 10 o'clock, I think, to a House committee chaired by Jim Jordan. Uh, I think Jim Jordan calls it the committee to investigate the weaponization of the FBI by the Democrats, but he ought to call it the committee to investigate the weaponization of the Democrats by the FBI. But anyway, he's uh, he'll be testifying on what they found out from the uh, Twitter files about how government agencies were were basically censoring the internet <clears throat> and so i think that's really important i just wanted to give a shout out for that i don't know whether c-span's carrying that or not 
Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Yeah, I knew that was scheduled. It is important. Finally. And I'll probably get to watch it sometime late this afternoon. I've got this routine uh, late in the evening. Uh, actually, it's kind of weird. It's, it's an hour or two during the day. It's another absolute hour and a half in the afternoon, followed up by about an hour in the evening when I basically align my notes and make sure if I missed anything. See, the problem with Trump, as much as I liked him as a candidate for president, the, the problem with Trump was um, it had been um, – you get a very normal way of doing things. In other words, we um, we prepare at a certain time. We do this at a certain time. So so I'd methodically prepared for radio shows. And then Trump comes along. And, and the next thing you know, you can't methodically prepare for radio shows anymore because Trump may tweet something at 1 o'clock in the morning that completely changes the theme or mood or sentiment of what is happening in the body politic. So... Um, I had to basically scrap all of my preconceived plans of the way I was accustomed to doing things and, and start doing them a completely and totally um, different way. So, yeah, I, I love Trump as a candidate. He was very interesting, um, very, very curious, uh, very, very disruptive, uh, very different. But I didn't like the fact that he um, completely obliterated the way I normally uh, prepare. I want to do this. Let's take a break. I want to come back, not to me, but I want to come back to a, um, to a blurb. And it was um it reminded me of days gone by because it begins with um the presiding officer of the South Carolina State Senate recognizing um Senator from Lexington Richland and the Senator from Charleston and they have a back and forth. So Jim, I want you to listen to this. They have somewhat of a back and forth. I mean, Chip Campson is as conservative a Republican as there is in that chamber. I will assure you. I know from firsthand knowledge, Campson is a conservative. DeCarputlian is a very liberal senator. The The interaction they have about how we should elect judges is something I think some of you would find interesting. So when we come back, it won't be to me. It'll be rather to the South Carolina State Senate. Back in a few. We're back. This is Wake Up Carolina on Live 95 and the iCarriter Talk Network. Thank you. Senator. Senator from Charleston, what purpose do you ask, sir? Senator. I'd like to Hanson. ask the senators a question when he is done. Why don't you go ahead and ask me the question? Senator, you, Senator Yields for a question. <laughs> Senator Yields. I'm sorry, I've been in a snappy event for the last six weeks, so I'm just trying well, to. Senator Yields for a question. Well, well, Senator, I just want to make it clear, and this is, I have great respect for you and your legal ability, and um, but. Did Judge Newman rule against your side, your client? On occasion. I mean, it, it, look, it's a, it's a six-week process. We'd object. They'd object. He'd rule for us, rule against us. It's a, it's, now, are you asking me, do I think he made legal errors? Obviously. I mean, we're going to appeal. Does that mean I'm right? No. There's five folks across the street that will make that decision, and then there's, you know, federal court. So the process is working. I think that's what I want to tell you. Well, Senator, what I wanted to ask you, do you think, because I have an opinion on this, and, I, and one, of the, one of the criticisms um, against the way that we elect and choose judges in South Carolina is that they'll be beholding to legislators once they get on the bench. Didn't happen do, in this do case. Do you think that Did happened to happen you in, in this, this case, case, Senator? Trust me, okay? <laughs> I've got a couple big black and blue marks on this <laughs> rear end of mine that will 
Well, we'll affirm that. Please don't. Sh we'll take your word for that. You don't need to show <laughs> us. But, but I just wanted to raise. This is this is one of this is the most high-profile case probably in the history of South Carolina, and at least in the age of YouTube and internet, it certainly what um, just grasped the the attention of of a nation and a world even. But I always often hear this criticism that if, if the General Assembly elects judges, then they're going to be beholden to lawmakers. And I just wanted to make that point. That didn't happen to you during this trial, Senator. There may have been a point, I've been doing this almost 50 years, there may have been a point in the distant past where, you know, you had one senator per, per county, um, home rule was typically from their home, um, and things operated differently back then. There wasn't transparency. There weren't computer records. There weren't, uh, and, and that's evolved so that we're electing uh, a, a different generation, if you will, than when I started out. Um, and I don't sense that um, legislator, leg, lawyer legislators, I don't get it. I mean, what I will get accommodated on is schedule. Um, uh, you know, if I need a uh, motion scheduled on a Monday or Friday to accommodate me, that's fine. But I don't, nobody, I don't go into any courtroom saying, you know, I voted for that person, or I know that, I mean, many of them at my age I knew before they were judges and have a personal relationship with them. I just don't see that, I don't see that happening. Now, I'm not telling you that doesn't happen, you know, in some remote rural area where, you know, it's a different environment than where I practice, um, although I just spent six weeks in a remote rural area, but I didn't see, I didn't, I, I don't see that. I, I will tell you this. I've been around the country. I try cases all over the country over the years. Public election of judges is a disaster. I had a case in Texas. I agree with that. I had a case in Texas where we argued a motion, um, and uh, the, the other side apparently, I just had local counsel, contributed a whole bunch of that guy. He was just beating us up. He got unelected before the ruling came out. We got another judge. Um, who our local council was friends with or contributed to, and we won. So, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, friendship's one thing. Cash is something else. So public election's horrible, in my opinion. The, having them appointed by the governor, uh, I think, puts too much power in his hands. And by the way, we have a retirement system for these judges where they have to serve 20, what is it, 20 years before they can, they can draw down. So what are they going to be willing to do to make sure they get reappointed? I mean, it's just, this is, I think, while there are problems with this system, um, I think this is the best system. Now, would I suggest uh, reforms to the judicial merit selection process? Absolutely. And I'm going to do that this year as these bills come up. I, I agree with you on that, but that the one issue about popular elected judges, the scales of justice don't have any fingers to stick into the wind, and that's what will happen if we have properly elected judges. The governor nominating and, 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 and confirmation by advice and consent by the Senate, that is perhaps acceptable. But the main point that I wanted to hear, because I hear this time and again, that people think, members of the public think that we get special treatment as lawyer legislators. And this case demonstrated, I think, to a watching world, you did a great job. You represented your client well. The prosecution did a great job. You think they, there was some error, and that's your duty. If you think there may be, and you have an argument in a case that you, that you, that you appeal. But 
it's pretty clear that that you as a as a senator did not receive any and nor your client receive any special treatment and that that is not the case in general in, in, in the state of South Carolina and we have judges who are they're going to issue rulings that are impartial and the most important thing of a some you, you go to court all the time but when your clients it's their usually their one and only day in court and they're scared to death they're worried are they going to be fairly treated and this system does produce judges like Judge Newman who I have great respect for and always have um, to, to, to rule justly and appropriately. Well, and it's sort of unfortunate that, you know, what gets the attraction is the criminal case when most cases are civil cases involving money. Um, and because they involve money, um, more often they're taken more seriously than, because all we're talking about is somebody's life here. Real money, um, that's where you would have problems. I don't see it. I don't see judges giving advantages to legislators because they, they elect them. Um, Senator, your five-minute, Senator from Charleston's five minutes has expired. Uh, that, uh, unanimous consent to give the Senator from Richland five minutes. I think the Senator from Lexington is going to do the same. So with, without objection. I mean, the Senator from Col Good. Richland, five minutes, five minutes. With the Senator from Charleston not asking me <laughs> questions. Without objection, five, uh, the, the Senator has five minutes. Thank you. Um, I originally got up here to say this. I got a number of emails, texts, especially from the senator in Lexington. That's kind of um, that, that's a bittersweet moment for me, hearing some of the odds. Uh, yeah, what the, are you thinking? I, you mean, I, I mean, I, I've done a lot of that. I mean, I, you know, for what purpose does senator rise? That, that's, that's what you would say. Sure. I mean, you're, the, you're playing traffic cop. I mean, you're, you're the traffic cop of the Senate when you're the presiding officer, and I took it seriously. I mean, I tried to do the best I knew how to be fair and impartial to whomever had something to say, whatever case they wanted um, to make. And, uh, as a Republican and a Republican majority, I very often get told you're one of us. And I never felt it was my job to be one of us or one of them. It was my job to be impartial. Everybody in that Senate chamber had been elected by voters, Democrat, Republican, um, and they deserve to be heard. And as traffic cop presiding officer, it was my responsibility not to apply justice because I'm not applying justice, but to be very respectful of whomever had something to say um, and how they and how they said it, how they conducted uh, themselves. Now, my, my takeaway here, and, and I want to be fair to Jim, I don't know that two lawyer legislators are the are the best example of who needs to be discussing whether uh, lawyers, excuse me, whether legislators should appoint judges or not. I mean, that that's obviously going to be a very biased point of view. Chip Campson is a conservative, but he's a lawyer legislator. Dick Harputlian's a liberal but he's a lawyer legislator. So both of those come from not a conservative or liberal position, but rather the position of a lawyer legislator. So, um, so, so yeah, he, here's my takeaway guys. And, and I've told Mike, Jay and Philip this, um, I've told many lawyer friends I have this, um, my biggest concern with the current system is how much the lawyers tend to like it. Good point. That bothers me. I mean, that, that really bothers me. I would rather the lawyers not like it very much because if the lawyer, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just instinctive. I, I don't base that on anything. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but the majority of lawyers I speak with say, man, we don't want public election of lawyers. And you really don't want the governor doing it because that gives the governor so much authority. 
I don't care if lawyer, if if uh, I don't care if a judge is appointed by the General Assembly, by popular vote, by the governor appointment, and some sort of advise and consent role of the Senate, which is what Chip said. Excuse me, Senator Campson said a second ago. But but I would rather lawyers not like the system very much. If I were advising the lawyers in South Carolina, uh, if I were a member of the Trial Lawyer Association, and we were down at Hilton Head, we heard a lot about during the Murdoch trial. I would say, hey, guys, if somebody asks you how you like this system, tell them you don't like it much. <laughs> tell them you'd rather see something something different than this. But every lawyer that I've spoken with off the record about this says, nah, man, you don't want to do what you're talking about doing. You don't want publicly elected judges. You don't want a governor appointee, you know, advised or, excuse me, confirmed by the General Assembly. You need to leave it just like it is. And when a lawyer says you need to leave it, I mean, that'd be like the truck body manufacturers. Um, saying of OSHA, uh, man, I love OSHA. No, you know, you know what truck body manufacturers don't like? They don't like OSHA. They don't like the EPA. There's this natural friction that manufacturing has with regulatory agencies. And I think that's healthy. Now, now do I think the government is, is zealous and overreaching and demand too much of the private sector? Yes. But why would I say that, Rev? Because I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm not a member of the administrative state. I'm a business person. So naturally, in the manufacturing sector, I, I think OSHA is a pain in the butt. I think DPA is an absolute disaster. I think DHEC can't get out of their own way. You would expect me to say some of those things. But but the, the lawyers who appear before judges like the way the judges are chosen. That would be like me as a truck body manufacturer saying, you know, man, I, I like OSHA. I mean, I like EPA. I like DHEC. I think they do an excellent job of creating guidelines and benchmarks, excuse me, guardrails and and, uh, and and regulations that I have to abide by. No, anybody in manufacturing, the majority of people in manufacturing despise DHEC. They despise EPA. They despise OSHA. They should. There should be an unnatural, excuse me, an unhealthy relationship one uh, between the other. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning. Uh, good morning, fellas. I cannot agree with you. Um should not like this the state that we're in. I think that'll make a better South Carolina. Um, also, it, it, I think the trial and in general is going to shine a bright light. It's, they're sitting over. This is going to be some stuff looking into other lawyers, some stuff looking into uh, some of the prosecutors, some of the arresting uh, sheriff's officers on the crime scene in 2019. I mean, you you mean to tell me? a local legislator who has put a magistrate on the bench and their third cousin, twice removed, is going in front of that magistrator, that they're not going to give them a little call and say, hey, look, you know, I know this person messed up, but... So, I mean, you can't have it one way and have it the other. But, but Ashley, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this. Would you agree that at the local level, it's almost impossible to take those personal and human re- interactions out of the equation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I think there needs to be a combination of either or, like Jim says. I don't mind them being appointed, but I think at some point you have to have a a, a thing in place that we can look at the record, look at what they're doing, 
and and let the voters take voice. Maybe not get maybe not get them out of office. Maybe not do this, that, and the other. But at the very least, have that on record. Just say, okay, the voters of Florence County on these three judges have said that this one, this one, and this one are doing great jobs. This one and this one, maybe not so much. Interesting. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. You know, there's a model out there. I can't think of the state. I won't try to refer to the state. There's a model out there that the the governor appoints the General Assembly or their version of the General Assembly, the legislative body, would confirm, and they get like a six-year term, and after that, they're elected by the public. They have screening and judicial review. Their scorecard, so to speak, is released to the general public. It would be like a, you know, a radio ad or television ad. Um, you know, Judge Newman was selected to be a judge or elected to be a judge in 2007. He's up for renewal in 2017, and here's how good a judge he's been or not. And the general public then elects. And I think once the public elects that second six-year term, they get appointed the next six years. You see what I'm saying? It, it's, it's a complicated model, but um, – but, but I want to go back to what I said, and I don't, I mean, I'm not blaming the lawyers. Please understand. I mean, if in the truck body manufacturing business, guess what we tried to do, Reb? We tried to gain favor with OPEC. I mean, with, um, not OPEC, with OSHA and DHEC. I'm trying to see, there you go again, <laughs> DHEC and OSHA. OPEC. With OPEC. <laughs> Never dealt with OPEC. Not oh, the, um, totally different yeah, organization. The, the, the oil cartel. <laughs> uh, that, that was a, uh, above my pay grade. 843-66109. Three seven is our number. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Ken. I called too late yesterday to finish my thing, and I just wanted you to think about something. I told you I was working with a bunch of Spaniards, and we were, and you, you're opining on the social security dilemma. What would you think about giving a $25,000 ticket to all the undocumented, letting them pay 5000 a year for five years, and putting them on the rolls? I mean, everyone I, you know, I know they're conservative people, and I think the Democrats are wrong in thinking they're going to always vote Democrat. I don't but have. Way to, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with people coming into the country seeking a better way and, and gainful employment and participating in our economy. I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. My concern has always been illicits, you know, and some of the coyotes and fentanyl and drugs and the cartels. And I mean, the, the, the center of my concern is cartels and how much of the country they control. I mean, I read the other night, 35% of Mexico is controlled by the cartels. I mean, that, that, that's my, so, so when it comes to, you know the um, we have a tragic example of that right now that is no, no, close no to our area. About, no question about it. With, with with you know very recently someone very local um, went went seeking some sort of um health care amenity and and two people are dead and I think two people are uh, were in harm's way. But no, Nick. I mean I I don't I I would be more than willing to debate how to better involve the the number of immigrants or excuse me the number of well I'm going to say undocumented who make their way to the country but participate in our economy. Um, yeah, I mean, it, let, let's let's sit down and discuss what the number is, what the percentage needs to be. But but my, but my concern, once again, I mean, I know it distorts unskilled labor, but I mean, there's no denying that. But but there, we ask for some of that. But, but, but my concern has been and remains 
the 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 percentage of the Mexican economy controlled by the cartel and how interconnected the Mexican government is with the cartel and you know fentanyl, cocaine, heroin, all these other sorts of things is what I'm more interested and concerned about. Understood. I was just thinking, you know, on the uh, on the social security thing. If you gave the ones that are here a fine, a ticket for being for crossing illegally of twenty five thousand dollars is what I would say, and get them on the rolls, and then make it easier for us for them to come in legally to cut the knees out of the cartel, maybe. Yeah. What if they don't make good on the promise? What, in other words, what if they get a twenty-five grand bill and they miss a payment? What do we do then? Well, but but so my thought is is that they would have to apply, fingerprint, whatever, have gain. Then they start. They get a they get their own, for lack of a better word, social security number. They can get a driver's license. They can become. We can find, we can track them with fingerprints if they have committed a crime and not allow them to participate. Okay. I mean, that, 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 to me, that, thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. That's a reasonable proposition as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if this is the answer, but that there, there's somebody thinking creatively about an issue we have um, that could potentially aid and assist nah, with another issue. I mean, immigration is an issue, no doubt about it. Social Security deficit is an issue or the potential insolvency of Social Security down the down the road. I want to spend a good bit of time tomorrow talking about the economy, the Fed, housing, inflation. I mean, we have really, really gone down the road of neoconservatism, Tucker Carlson, and January 6th. I want to, if you will, allow me to, I mean, I think there's some major, major signs out there that are beginning to freak me out. But before we do that, hmm. and before we get out of here, I got to give Rev the floor, oh. because you've been adamant about this Um. This notification you want to give to our listeners about our, our trivia question. Well, and because it's come up uh, to me a couple of times on the phone talking to listeners, in particular contest winners, so we do the contest and we do the Pepsi trivia on Mondays and Fridays, which we've moved to a random time. We don't do it at the end of the show anymore, so a random time Monday through Friday. But we do have contest rules that the listeners uh, need to be aware of, and they're available. They're published on the website of the radio station, live953.com, or any of the community broadcasters' radio stations. Basically, any contest that is done by any organization has to have rules of eligibility, etc., and we have to make those available for people to see. We have a 45-day policy, which means that you can, in fact, the exact verbiage on the rule that we have to follow is only one winner per household is permitted per contest in a 45-day period. And that is just that is a corporate rule that the company set, and we are bound by enforcing that rule. And if you want to see that rule and any of the contest rules related to contesting on this radio station or any of the community broadcaster stations, go to the websites. They're published there. But I just wanted to say that we do have a 45-day a uh, contest rule for winning a, a contest and just make sure that everybody was aware. I'm glad someone in these two booths takes regulations seriously. <laughs> Enjoy rules. your day. We'll talk tomorrow.